0: Houston, we have a podcast. Welcome to the official podcast of the NASA Johnson Space Center, Episode 30, Infamous Meteorites. I'm Gary Jordan, and I'll be your host today. So on this podcast, we bring in the experts, NASA scientists, engineers, astronauts, all to let you know the cool stuff about what's going on right here at NASA. So today, we're talking about some of the more unique findings that have been discovered in meteorites with David Middelfeld. It goes by Duck. He's a planetary scientist here at the NASA Johnson Space Center in Houston, Texas. We had a great discussion about curious findings in meteorites and the adventures that are endured to procure them. So, with no further delay, let's go light speed and jump right ahead to our talk with Dr. Duck Metalfield. Enjoy.
1: T-minus 5 seconds and counting. Mark. Right, the right. so, she goes. Isn't we have a podcast?
0: Duck, thanks for coming to the podcast today. I know uh, we've we've talked about searching for life and meteorites before, and it's it's such a fascinating topic. But I really wanted to dive deeper, just into like the meteorites portion. We really we really actually had a great conversation with uh, Dr. Aaron Burton and um, and Dr. Mark Fries, uh not too long ago, actually, about life, but really just about the meteorites themselves. There's a there's a big story there, and you're one of the explorers that are going down and actually finding these meteorites, huh?
1: <laughs> yeah yeah I, I've done that on a number of occasions
0: yeah and it's uh is it is it mostly in Antarctica or are you going other places?
1: well uh, okay, so most of the times I've been uh searching for meteorites has been in Antarctica, so I've okay. been down there five times uh, on meteorite collecting expeditions wow. um but uh i i I was uh, on vacation in Israel once and I met up with a couple of geologists at a coffee house um and one of them had just published a paper where uh, they, he described, uh, you know, old surfaces in the deserts of southern Israel that are, you know, been stable for about two million years. And I'm thinking, you know, over two million years, you can accumulate a lot of meteorites. So uh, I actually uh, went there uh, the fol- later that year uh, and met up with them again. And we searched some of these uh, areas that are uh, have very ancient uh, uh, pavements on the desert. And uh, hunting for meteorites, uh, we didn't find any, uh-huh. um, unfortunately. And, uh, um, you know, I'm not quite sure why. There, sh- there should have been some there, but uh, you know, it was a small team searching large area over a short time. So it may well be that they're there, but we just didn't find any because the ones that, you know, are there are small. Uh, the other is uh, there were a number of... Uh, uh, issues with that particular location. Meteorites, you know, when we find meteorites, they're typically uh, black on the outside because they've gone through the atmosphere and they're covered with this glassy fusion crust, which is almost always black. Um, the area we had searched in uh, southern Israel actually had a number of dark rocks in it as well. So, uh, you know, the meteorites, if they were there, would not have stood out as uh like, like you know, the beacons that you see when you're in Antarctica scooting across uh, bare ice. So.
0: I guess that—is that the main reason why Antarctica is such a great place to find meteorites is because it's these black rocks against
1: white snow? Well, that certainly makes it easy because <laughs> you, you can see, you know, a rock—I'm going to use metric units uh, because that's what I'm used to. I'll try and remember to throw in inches and feet uh, as I can. But, sure. Um, so, you know, you can find a, a, a black rock a couple centimeters across or about an inch across from a great distance in Antarctic on the ice. Um, and and it, as you say, it's because you're looking at either pale blue ice or sometimes white snow. Mm-hmm. Most of the meteorites we find are on the pale blue ice, but but even so it's very bright yeah. in comparison to rocks. So they're easy to find there. The other thing is... Um, in Antarctica, we have a convenient concentration mechanism, which is the actual uh, flow and ablation of the ice uh, across the continent. And where we go to find the meteorites is at, is actually in locations where uh, the ice movement has been stalled and ablation uh, by the Antarctic winds and, and warming by the Antarctic sun allow um, a lag deposit to develop on the surface. So we're actually collecting... Uh, meteorites that have been, you know, shoved from a great geographic area and then left behind in a smaller uh, geographic area. So we have, you know, base we have both the uh, easy to spot and and the concentration mechanism working in our favor. All there. right.
0: Yeah, they're are plentiful down there. So so you made quite a few trips. How many was it? You said five.
1: Yeah, I've been down five times. The first time was in uh, the '97-'98 uh, field season. Um, that was my first uh, Antarctic experience, and I loved it so much I kept volunteering to go back again. You loved Antarctica. Oh, yeah, I, <laughs> I, I, I love it, you know, uh, yeah, you, just, just uh, last week, uh, well, here in Houston, we had temperatures that Houstonians think of or Texans think of as cold. but right. uh, me, I see that as maybe a cold fall day because um, i was I was born and raised in Western New York. All right. And at the same time, you know, my hometown was getting temperatures. uh, Okay, again, I've got to do some conversion here. Uh, (laughs) About uh, maybe, uh, you know, between zero and five degrees Fahrenheit. Um, uh, And, you know, that was the weather I grew up with in the winter, um, and I loved it. That winter was always my favorite season uh, when I was a kid. All
0: right. So, so maybe it's a deep level of winter that really cuz I just came from this we're just coming back from the holidays now and it was it was negative 2 in Pittsburgh when I yeah, when I was yeah. flying home and I mean I was I was born and raised in Pennsylvania, moved around a lot, but I'm not used to it by any means. Like I like the, I like the everyone you know saying, "Oh my gosh, 32 is really cold." I like, I'm okay with just that.
1: No, no. For I, me, I, I, love the deep winter in Western New York. All right, a lot of snow there too.
0: So when was the last time you were down in Antarctica then?
1: So, uh, so I was down uh, last year, 2016, 2017. Um, it was kind of a disappointment for me personally. Oh. Um, I, I. Because of my experience, I've been down four times before, I I left early and was going to go out on a recon uh, sweep with uh, the the Mountaineer uh, Field Safety Officer for the ANSMET program. ANSMET, by the way, stands for uh, Antarctic Search for Meteorites, and that's the program that goes down to collect the rocks and has been doing so every year but one since uh, 1976. All right. Um, But anyway, because of my experience, I was going to go down uh, on this recon before the main season. We were going to go to one area, check it out for potential uh, uh, systematic work uh, in a future season, and then stay for the first half of the main season going to uh, a location uh, deep along the— um, Antarctic, Transantarctic mountains. Hmm. Well, it turns out logistics were badly broken last year, Ooh. Um, and uh, partly because of weather, partly because of uh, uh, problems with the aircraft uh, and so on. So I, I got out into the field for a week uh, in preseason. Uh, we I got back to McMurdo Station while we were gearing up for the main season, but the logistics just broke, um, and so they were not going to go out where they originally planned. Uh, the team ended up going to where I had been out on recon, uh, but it was they got such a late start that it made more sense to ship me home early. Uh, rather than, you know, go out for maybe a week and then come back into McMurdo and go home. Yeah. Uh, so I I, lo- I just was spent one week out in the field last year, uh, much, so... much to my chagrin.
0: <laughs> so it was just the lack of time that you spent there. That was really the disappointment. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was lack of time.
1: And, you know, in the brief time uh, that uh, uh, John Scott and I, he's the Mountaineer, uh-huh. uh, were out on the ice, um, you know, we we spent a week in the field, uh, two and a half days. We were tent-bound because the weather was so bad. But even so, we found 46 meteorites in the short time we were there. That's amazing. Yeah. And, wow. And, 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 remi- and remember, this was an area that had been heavily harvested back in uh, the 80s, 70s and 80s. We were going back to see whether there was uh, still great potential for harvesting more meteorites um, uh, there. And And in fact, I think... Last year they ended up coming back, uh, picking up a total of two hundred and some meteorites. Even with uh, you know going back to an area that had been uh, uh, searched before and having shortened season because of logistics. So, I mean that get, that kind of shows you the the quality of Antarctica as a, as a site for bringing back space rocks. It's just awesome. Incredible.
0: So is is that um, is it because there's just a fresh I guess you can call it supply of meteorites that are landing on the surface of Antarctica, or is it things are shifting? It, it's more sh- uh,
1: things are shifting. Okay. Um, uh, in part, uh, uh, you know, in, uh, deflation of the surface continues as ablation uh, goes on, and so new meteorites are poking through. I see. Uh, in part, it's uh, shifting winds blowing snow around, so an area that might have been uh, snow covered. Earlier season, maybe now has been stripped bare and there's bare ice. Um, and okay. so that allows you to, to see things. Um, so for a variety of reasons, you can go back to the same place you've searched once and and still find uh, uh, meteorites out there.
0: Incredible. And hundreds of them. A little bit better yeah. than Israel, right? With, yeah, with a, with yeah. A, <laughs> yeah. Quite, a, quite a bit <laughs> better
1: than my experience uh, <laughs> trying to find meteorites in uh, the Negev Desert.
0: <laughs> um, so, you, so you're saying a uh, uh, season. Um, when you're going down to Antarctica, I'm assuming it's the summer there, right? It's when yep, it's, it's Austral summer. Yeah, so that
1: means the sun is up 24/7, right? Right.
0: So you kind of have to deal with that when you're when you're down there, right?
1: Yeah, uh, you know, I've I've become accustomed to that. The, the first I I was kind of t- there was a guy who uh, used to work in our building uh, who had been down, I think, a year or two before me. So I took advice from him, and he said, you know, one of the things is, you know, with the constant sunlight, sometimes sleep can be a problem. So I bought a heavy black knit hat and you know I just put that on uh, as my sleep hat and then pulled the brim over my eyes and so everything was black so I I could sleep fine down there oh nice uh, but the you know the uh, main advantage is um, that uh, because the sun's up 24/7 you're not really bound by the 9 to 5 time uh, sequence so th- oh, yeah. when I, as i said uh, when we were when i was out last year in the in the recon site we were there for a week you know, we, we landed, got our gear, and then went, spent half a day out. And then the, the winds blew in. It was too uh, windy and cold to go out. So uh, the winds broke around noon one day or a little bit after noon, we decided we would have a, an early supper and then go out and collect harvest meteorites. So that day we ended up getting out of the tents maybe five o'clock in the evening, and we worked till about one thirty two in the morning. Whoa! The sun was up; it was perfectly fine. Uh, it was just my uh, aged body crapping out at one thirty. <laughs> I, you know, I just couldn't pick up another meteorite if. If they beat me with a stick, you know I was wow. just so tired. But that, you know, that's uh, that's uh, something you can do down there that you can't do here.
0: Yeah. Did you know the hours were going by, or did you have no sense of time with the with the sun being up?
1: Um, well, you know, you can trace the sun. If you pay attention, you can uh, get a sense of the day because the sun does a lazy loop in the sky, and oh. and so you know once you've located yourself, you know where north south is. I mean, there is still north and south, even that close to the pole. <laughs> yeah. But you know, you know, at midnight, the the sun is going to be, um, you know, you know, at, at one, you know, at the one position. So You're right, right. And, and it's kind of at the lowest point, um, uh, uh, far north. And so, you know, you can track it that way. But basically, I didn't pay attention. We were just so busy, uh, you know, driving p- from place to place, harvesting meteorites uh, that. Uh, you know it was just constantly moving doing the next one uh, uh, taking the data collecting it you know s- cleanly and safely and getting it in the bag and moving on to the next location
0: oh so are you are you not uh, you're not stationary then when you when you kind of set up camp are you are you kind of mobile like with your camp well, and you just move it from one meteorite um, site no no
1: uh, the camp oh, okay. the camp is usually there there are a couple of there are a couple of ways that it is done when we do systematic searching the camp is stationary in one spot perhaps for the whole field season okay. and you just go out day to day to different locations oh. uh, and that's what we did here. We were on recon so we we plunked the tent down then we searched uh, within uh, easy skidoo range of the camp. <laughs> um, uh, sometimes, and, and I've done this before, go down on a recon team where where you go and you put camp down, you might uh, prospect an area for two three weeks. Then you move camp to another area and prospect there for two or three weeks. Um, so there uh, there there are both those there are those two types of uh, scenarios. And even in the recon mode, you know you're the the tent is the the camp is stationary for two or three weeks, and you're skidooing all around that area to to search it, and then you only pick up. Uh, tents and camp, and and move to a, a far distant area to to recon that general region.
0: All right. So, all right. Well, I'm guessing you know going down there so many times, you're quite an expert in making sure that you know <laughs> you can survive weeks and weeks and weeks in in Antarctica. So, what are the, some some of the stuff that you're taking down there that I guess are unique to the Antarctic environment?
1: Okay, so um, uh, most of the gear you get, you get in Christchurch. So, oh. you know, living in Houston, I don't have a winter coat. <laughs> oh. So uh, it, it, uh, at uh, the clothing distribution center in Christchurch, mm-hmm. um, you'll get out-kitted, uh, outfitted with, uh, you know, heavy heavy uh, jackets, all the gloves you can want, uh, thermal pants, uh, fleece liners, uh, boots, uh, hats. All right. everything you need to uh, survive and then in mcmurdo station you actually get the camping gear the tents the cook stoves the dishes the food um sleeping bags that sort of stuff um so all all the the intrepid antarctic explorer needs to take down with them are uh, personal items like i mentioned my knit hat that i that was mine and oh, okay. that was uh, because i knew i was wanted something to sleep in <laughs> um I, you know, I bought uh, extra pairs of thermal underwear because uh, the first time I went down, you know, they they give you uh, two sets, but you're out in the field for six or seven weeks. So you want to change, you know, once in a while. (laughs) Probably. Um, uh, Other than that, you know, my my glasses are prescription. And uh, so I buy uh, glasses that uh, transition dark in sunlight. Hmm. So I can just, you know, wear my normal glasses out on the skidoo, um, I, I have actually bought uh, glacier glasses so I have side shields and whatnot to block the light. You want to one of the things that really is critical down there is to block out all light from your eyeballs that, you know, other than what gets filtered through a dark lens uh, because otherwise snow blindness is a problem. Oh,
0: that's right. It's so bright down there, yeah, right? Yeah. yeah.
1: Um, so I, I do that, but otherwise you know most of the gear they give you uh, uh, they, they loan it to you for the time that you're out there. And and so, you know, you could survive on just what you get from uh, uh, the Antarctic program down in Antarctica. Wouldn't necessarily be entirely comfortable uh, wearing the same clothes, you know, for seven weeks. But you could do it.
0: <laughs> so, so your uh, this Antarctic program is that that's, that's ANSMET, right? Right. Okay. So, what's the what's the relationship between ANSMET and NASA, and how that all works together?
1: Well, originally ANSMET was set up as a uh, three agency agreement. So, huh. The the it was funded. The actual Antarctic search for meteorites was funded through the National Science Foundation. Foundation. Foundation because they have, uh, they they do the uh, scientific research in Antarctica. Okay. Um, NASA uh, funded the uh, curation and allocation of uh, meteorite samples here at NASA Johnson Space Center. And then the Smithsonian Institution did the initial uh, classification uh, and was the long-term repository for the meteorites collected in Antarctica. Uh, that since then, since then, uh, they've changed it, and now NASA actually funds the Antarctic, uh, uh, the ANSMET research component. Uh, um, NSF still supplies the logistics, but NASA pays NSF for those that those logistics <laughs> because they they are the uh, I mean, they have all the logistics in Antarctica. yeah, and and the rocks still go ultimately to the Smithsonian a, a chip for initial uh, classification, and rocks that are, no longer actively being uh, researched by scientists in the world, end up being permanently curated at uh, the Smithsonian Institution. Ah. So that is uh, that is uh, still the way things are run.
0: All right. So, so is uh, the ones that people are researching and, and actively studying, are
1: all of them housed here at the Johnson Space Center? Yes, uh, oh. with some exce- exceptions. We don't have the uh, necessary... F- facilities to easily uh, deal with uh, metal-rich meteorites. So iron huh. meteorites, uh, 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 stony iron meteorites, automatically go... Uh, nope, I'm going to pull that back. Iron meteorites automatically go to the Smithsonian Institution because oh. they are equipped for, to cut uh, metal and, and make uh, uh, samples available. Um, we do do the stony meteorites here. I forgot about that um, because I've gotten some from here. Um, <laughs> uh, so uh, those that have a significant stony component are still uh, worked on here until they become uh, uh, no longer of scientific uh, interest. Okay. Uh, but, but you know, even though they go to the Smithsonian for uh, permanent curation, they're, they're not uh, dead to science, so to speak. So I can request samples that have been housed at Johnson Space Center for years and now transformed permanently to the Smithsonian uh, if if I find, you know, an interesting project to do on one of these old samples. And I actually have gotten uh, in the past some samples from the Smithsonian that were originally from the Antarctic collection.
0: Wow. So... Back in Antarctica, when you're looking at these meteorites and you're trying to, you know, figure out what they are—are are they, you know, more stony, more metal-rich? Uh, what are you using to to look at them to to find out more about them and say, yes, that's a meteorite that I want to get my hands on? What, how do you know what's the good stuff?
1: Uh, decades of experience. There you go. <laughs> um, so I, you know, I can look at a rock in Antarctica. And I can already make a preliminary classification. Really? Wow. Um, sometimes I'm wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and you know, the guy who has more experience than anyone is is our uh, mountaineer field safety officer, John Scott. And you know, he, he can look at a rock and, and in many cases give a pretty good guess as to what it's current going to turn out to be. Um, and you know I can do that with a lot of different types of rocks, especially those that I'm interested in. Mm-hmm. Um, but all in all, there there are always those meteorites that come back that either no one has ever seen uh, before because it's totally new, or it's enough different from the norm for that class that it just doesn't doesn't appear to be uh, what you think it is uh, in hand sample. Um, so and we don't and we don't you know. In Antarctica, we don't do any more than a very high level classification. Yes, this is a stony meteorite. It's probably a chondrite. This is probably a carbonaceous chondrite. This is probably an achondrite, which is a type of meteorite that's been uh, melted. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is probably a stony iron, an iron, and so forth. Um, and to some extent, uh, we need to do that because. Um, Certain types of meteorites have more scientific value than others. Hmm. So, for, so, for example, a very primitive carbonaceous chondrite um, is, is probably going to get a lot of research attention when it's announced. And so we collect those in a special way to try and minimize contamination by organic compounds. Uh. And that's why we need to be able to say, oh, yeah, you know, stand back from this guy. We need to treat him differently than, than this one over here. All right. And
0: then, obviously, you know, knowing where to ship it too, right? Because some of the metal ones have to go to the Smithsonian, some uh, of the so carbonaceous that, that, ones.
1: That, that, no, that's all done here. Everything oh. is shipped here to the Johnson Space Center. Oh, everything comes here. Right. Okay. And but the difference is when they when they open some that are listed in the in the uh, notes as probably being iron meteorites, mm-hmm. uh, they they will uh, warm them up in the dry nitrogen cabinets, look at them, and if they agree. You know, they'll do an external description. You know, this is a brown rock, uh, you know, 10 centimeters in size and weighs so much, and we don't see anything in it, you know, out of the ordinary from the outside. Then the whole thing will, then that whole rock will get shipped to the Smithsonian at that point. And there they'll cut it open with a wire saw, um, if it's, you know, indeed probably metal, and and then make a a polished mount and etch it to bring out the texture and, and so forth.
0: All right, and that's what you mean by the facilities, right? They have right. The, the proper right. facilities to right. do that. So, what about here? What kinds of um, equipment and facilities do we have to make sure that we're handling all of this properly? Uh,
1: so, um, in, in the uh, meteorite processing lab, uh, uh, we have um, we use tools of a very limited uh, uh, set of. Composition. So, um, typically, uh, stainless steel uh, hammers and chisels. Um, and and the reason is, in, you know, no matter what we do with a rock from space, we're going to contaminate with something from Earth. Oh. So the object is to one minimize that contamination. So we use materials that we know are not going to, you know, just shed particles everywhere. For example, right. Um, but also, uh, if we we use always the tools of the same of a given composition so that we know that if we see something like this in the rock oh yeah that must have come from the tool and and you know i've seen this the rocks are hard to break (laughs) and so you know your your choices are to saw them open or to use a hammer and chisel and uh... I have seen on a rock that I've gotten a flake from the chisel that rubbed off. Metal, you know, it's soft. Uh, Even hardened steel will rub off on occasion. So, uh, you know, I could see this. I can pull that contaminant off or isolate it um, uh, in the lab. But, uh, you know, I know then I can do a simple test. Yes, that's from the chisel. I don't have to worry about that. I've taken care of it. Mm -hmm. The rest of the sample is fine. So the object is to minimize contamination or to know what the potential contaminants are. And, you know, there's no way to get There's With modern technology, we can't, you know, we don't have magnetic levitation devices that we can then use a laser to slice them open cleanly. You know, we we do with what we got. This isn't Star Trek here
0: yet. We'll stick with the hammer and chisel for now. (laughs) Uh, So, I mean, when you're cutting these open and you open them up, what? what are you looking at? Are you looking at just the rock, or are you taking even smaller chunks of that? How is that working?
1: Well, that all depends on uh, the question that you're trying to answer, Um, and uh, I've done both, where I've uh, asked for samples of what's called a bulk sample of the rock, so something as representative of the entire rock as possible, and I've looked for individual Uh, class in the rock, little fragments that are of a specific type within the rock. um, All of this is basic uh, 19th century geology, to in many respects, hmm. you know, in the 19th century, geologists would go out in the field with their hammers. They they'd beat on a rock and use a hand lens to uh, look at the microscopic, mm, yeah, microscopic texture, oh. um, mineralogy in it. Uh, and uh, you know, a trained geologist can do the same with a meteorite and say, yeah, okay, I I can see I can see what this is. It's it's a certain type of rock type in there, Um, and that's what I want. I don't want this part over here. Um, So, uh, you know, traditional geologic methods, but with modern equipment, can be used. And, And, you know, there's there's nothing like the human eye and the brain for sorting out who's who in the zoo. <laughs> so then how can you... What, what are some of the key differences
0: for the for the non-geologically trained eye for when you're, you're looking at a rock and you can... You know, you cut it open and you look and you say, that's a meteorite. That's not from Earth. Or this is definitely from an Earth.
1: Yeah. Okay. Earth. So uh, the the first key is is fusion crust. I, I mentioned this earlier. Ah, uh, yeah. And that, that's where... Um, going through the atmosphere, friction with the air uh, causes the outer surface to melt uh, and actually, you know, little bits are flying off all the time. Mm -hmm. The meteorite we get on the surface is just a small piece of what entered the atmosphere. Most, Sometimes the vast majority of it just ablated away in the atmosphere into little droplets or dust. Wow. so, uh, you know, if you see a fusion crust on the rock, right away you know it's it's a meteorite. You don't have to go any farther than that. In terms of determining what type it is, um, more primitive meteorites. Um, these are a type that uh, still have textures and mineralogy uh, that were inherited from uh, uh, condensation and accretion in the solar nebula. That's where uh, individual mineral grains formed out of the gas that uh, that was the uh, uh, nebula before uh, the planets were around, wow. and and then they agglomerate together these mineral grains. And uh, in the in the solar nebula, the dust grains bang you know got melted into little tiny objects which we call chondrules. Um, so these typical textures um, are plainly evident to the human eye even without a microscope. Uh, hmm. But you know, with a with a very low power microscope, you can see them uh, quite easily. Me- most meteorites, especially primitive ones, uh, contain iron metal. Uh, it's actually iron nickel metal. Um, you know, you don't find that on Earth except when humans have been involved in in smelting iron ore. Uh, oh. But um, uh, so, uh, iron metal in a in a rock is kind of an indicator that it's quite likely from outer space very few occurrences on earth of native metal in in iraq um Uh, And then, uh, as I said, um, in the the dust in the solar nebula, went through periods of melting and formation of these little round uh, globules of um, basically melt globules, which we call chondrules. And and from that, uh, we got the name chondrite for these primitive rocks. Mm -hmm. Well, those uh, stand out in, you know, if you break open a rock, depending on on the type, uh, you know, you can see those quite easily, and and that's a, a key um.
0: Uh, and these have never they've been in space for all of time, right? They've performed in space and traveling through space. They've never they're not like from another planet or another like chipped off another Well, m- most no bo- uh, ac- asteroid or something. actually
1: um all, all meteorites we the only way we get meteorites is for bad things to happen in the asteroid belt. Oh. Um most meteorites are from asteroids and oh. when they collide little fragments get knocked off. And it's it's from these fragments that we get meteorites. So they were wow. originally on much larger bodies. I mean, much larger meaning asteroid size, not planet size. Okay. Um, and uh, they were broken up and uh, um, uh, then distributed to the Earth. Uh, you know, one of the... Sorry, I'm going to... Uh, I'm gonna sort of go back and get into my way back machine and go back to when I was a grad student. <laughs> Please do. Um, uh, I, when I, you know, I, when I first started learning about meteorites, one of the um, uh, mysteries at the time was there was a group of chondrite meteorites uh, called the L chondrites. Um, L was just the name, you know, the the name applied to them um, that had uh, ages. Of on uh, the order of 500 million years, and this was really odd because all meteorites are about four and a half billion years old. Well, these uh, they they uh, the, these meteorites were originally about four and a half million billion years old, but were somehow affected by an event that reset the ages about 500 million years ago. Whoa. And so, you know, this was, you know, just kind of an anomaly. We knew something bad had happened to an asteroid then about that time. Well, fast forward to, I think, the 90s. Um, a, a Swedish geologists started finding in uh, terrestrial sediments fossil meteorites. And, uh, you know, all that's left is a few mineral grains. You can, you can tell it, they were found in fine-grained limestone, uh, you know, formed on an ocean floor, mm-hmm. and all that you could see was this halo of odd stuff plus a few mineral grains that remained from the original meteorite. Well, you know, this guy and his compadres uh, studied these mineral grains, and they they found out they were from the same type of meteorite as these chondrites that were about 500 million years old, huh. and they were in layers in the rock of the Earth that were about that age. So uh, sometime 500 million years ago, you know, a couple asteroids collided. And a whole rain of meteorites of this type hit the earth at about, you know, within a few million years of when that occurred. And we can find them now in this layer uh, in Sweden uh, that's just chock full of these fossil meteorites. And, you know, to me that's one of these really neat kind of science stories where everything <laughs> starts tying together. Yeah. And then to get even further. Astronomers looking at uh, what they call asteroid families. So they they find an asteroid, they find a whole bunch in orbits similar to it. Spectroscopically, they all look to be about the same, and so they they figure out, well, these are all you know fragments of one, something that broke apart. Well, they found an asteroid that they figure, you know, based on uh, uh, the spectroscopy, it could be this type of you know asteroid that that formed these chondrites. And what they calculate the age of the family based on dispersion of the fragments, and it's about 500 million years. So, you know, between, uh, you know, meteorite scientists, uh, terrestrial geologists, and astronomers, (laughs) we've kind of got a neat picture of somehow, uh, you know, about the time of dawn of, of multicellular life on Earth, and two asteroids smashed together and rained out on the earth and we're still finding fragments coming down to earth now that we can uh, confidently date when this happened in terrestrial laboratories. It's it's just kind of one of these things that, you know, I find fascinating.
0: (laughs) I find it, I mean, a lot of this is over my head because I don't have the same background as you, but I just find it fascinating that you can look at these rocks and and get a story, get a story out of it. You know, like the story of two asteroids around the time that cellular life was developing coming down to Earth and raining down in these locations and telling this story. That's fantastic. Yeah,
1: Yeah. multicellular. So this is when, when, you know, fossils, shortly after the time when fossils uh, started becoming uh, uh, really abundant in the terrestrial record. Wow. So, uh, yeah, it's just a neat story. And, you know, basically, the, I think that's what got me into geology originally was, you know, you all you've got is, is a rock on the surface of the earth, and somehow you can, you know, if you're smart enough and, and do the right work, you can start to piece together an entire story of what the earth was like at that time. And so, uh, you know, that's kind of what drew me into geology. That's fantastic.
0: I love it, especially from from my background, the marketing and journalistic sort of background. uh, The storytelling aspect is just fascinating to me. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of like, that. you know, the title of this episode is going to be Infamous Meteorites. And that's kind of like what I really wanted to dive into is, you know, we've talked about where you're finding these meteorites and then what you're doing with them. You're actually cracking them open and studying them. But then what are you finding? What are you finding inside of these meteorites?
1: what stories yeah well exactly
0: yeah so um uh, you know one of the ones that I, I know that was brought to my attention was one of them called Allen hills and i'm gonna is it 84001 or do you call it by something else
1: no i i, I call it that
0: 84001 okay or
1: sometimes it's re- simply referred to as that rock
0: because <laughs> it's that infamous huh yeah. wow all right so what's the story behind behind this rock
1: Okay, so um, this came. This was found in Antarctica in 1984, um, and uh, it it's uh, it was originally classified as a t- uh, as a type of asteroidal uh, igneous rock. Uh, that I at the time I was uh, studying those those types of uh, uh, rocks. Um, you know, my 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 background is. Uh, heavily weighted towards an interest in magmatic processes on the Earth, the Moon, Mars, and asteroids. And and so that's why uh, this one was particularly of interest to me. Hmm. So I, I was uh, studying that along with a bunch of others that were thought to be uh, basically the same uh, classification of rock. And uh, unfortunately, uh, Alan Hills had um, some puzzling features in it that... Uh, we're we're a little bit off normal for for that rock type, but not so much so uh, that I I really stayed up at night worrying about it. (laughs) Um, And uh, so I wrote a paper uh, on on this group of rocks, uh, finally, um, uh, and uh, sent it in. And one of the reviewers uh, said, "Well, you know, uh, you point out that there is this anomaly in this rock, and you really ought to try and chase down why it's what's going on there, why it's different." Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, being a, 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 a moderately good scientist, I said, <laughs> "Okay, I, you know, he has pointed out it's a problem. I knew it was a problem, but now I've really got to do something about it." Um, so I started working at it, and uh, honestly, I I could not find out what was wrong with this particular rock. Mm-hmm. It it there was one mineral phase in it just did not um, match what one would expect for the class. Um, quite by chance, I got another sample of that rock for another reason, um, and in, 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 but it really wasn't the sample I had asked for. So um, there was a mix-up in uh, the thin section. So a thin section is uh, a very thin slice of a rock. It's about 30 microns thick, doubly polished on both sides. And it's used by uh, people who look through microscopes to look at the minerals and textures in a rock. And then you can put that uh, section uh, into a Uh, an electron microprobe and actually do analyses of the mineral phases in it. And so I was that's what I was interested in. Uh, In this particular rock which I thought I had I was interested in uh, the uh, composition of sulfide phases in the rock. So I I put the sample in uh, the electron microprobe without actually looking at it in the microscope first because I had seen this rock before, I knew what it was like, I knew what to expect, I just went straight to the electron microprobe. Which actually probably was good because I may have uh, turned the rock in and asked for a different one. Otherwise, <laughs> uh, but I'm getting it. I, I'm in the. I'm looking at it in the microprobe, looking for the mineral phases I'm looking for, and they just really aren't there. Uh, in the abundance that I expected. Finally, I found a grain, and I'm I'm, I'm banging away at it with the electron beam, uh, collecting compositions, and the compositions weren't making sense. Um, I was expecting it to be, so I was looking for sulfide phases, so I was expecting to have uh, 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 an iron monosulfide, so one iron, one sulfur atom. And the composition that was coming out just was not right. Um, And I checked the calibration. The calibration was perfect. So what's going on? Um, I was looking at the data um, not in atoms, but in uh, uh, mass, so weight percent. Uh So when I converted it to atoms, I realized I had two sulfur atoms for every iron atom instead of one. And that's when it hit me what was wrong with this rock. I then backed off, looked at at, uh, the texture in more detail in the electron microprobe, and realized I had a sample of Allen Hills, not the meteorite that I thought I had, uh-huh. and I knew which type of rocks had uh, 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 pyrite, the iron uh, disulfide, uh, instead of the iron monosulfide, and I knew those were mar- Martian rocks. Um, and so, you know, it was it was probably the most satisfying moment I've ever had in my life, wow. uh, ex- excluding when my children were born and, and when I got married. And I, if my wife listens to this, I hope she hears that um, was, you know, suddenly it dawned on me that this was a Martian rock that was totally unlike any other Martian rock, except the key minerals were in it. And uh, so, you know, it was just one of these aha moments that that you live for. Um, uh, and uh, you know, it was just so much fun. Amazing! I tell, I tell you.
0: <laughs> so, what were those the the key minerals? What 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 story did they tell?
1: So, um, the the key was because it had uh, the iron disulfide pyrite instead of the iron monosulfide troilite, I knew it was Martian, um, and uh, it was a rock type not known amongst the Martian meteorites. So, it, what it meant was. We had a new type of Martian rock that was going to tell us even more about the geologic evolution of Mars uh, than we already knew. Um, And, you know, all of this hit me within like a fraction of a second when I realized what it was. Wow. So, I mean, I immediately recognized that it was, you know, an important uh, meteorite um, uh, and that it would tell us big things. And and in fact, you know, it has opened up a, a whole host of, uh, you know, basically this rock ultimately became a, a founding member of uh, what you might consider uh, astrobiology. Um, and that came when uh, my colleagues here at uh, Johnson Space Center, uh, Dave McKay, Everett Gibson, uh, um, and Kathy Thomas, and and now uh, Simon Clement is added, and then there were uh, Simon's uh, uh, dissertation advisor, as Stanford was on the paper, and, and several other people. Mm-hmm. You know, they they proposed that a certain uh, uh, both mineralogical and uh, compositional and uh, textural uh, objects in this rock were possibly signs of uh, uh, microscopic life uh, that existed on Mars at one point. Wow. And, um, you know, to some extent, um, then this really... Um, allowed the the whole f- discipline of astrobiology to blossom because suddenly we had to figure out, you know, what, how do we uh, understand, um, how can we possibly search for life in other objects, other planets, you know, what do we need to look for? Because we're used to looking for life on Earth, you know, it's it's simple. I, just walking over here, I, you know, I had to uh, wait while an opossum walked past me in front of, on uh, the walkway. <laughs> you know, life is everywhere on Earth. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Whereas on Mars, you know, maybe it's not everywhere. Um, and if it was there, um, how are we going to tell that it was there? Mm-hmm. What, do, what do we need to do? So I, I would say the import of Alan Hills is uh, not so much that uh, it was hypothesized that life, uh, fossils of life are in that rock, but that it caused scientists to really uh, take a much more rigorous look at how they will Search for life uh, other places of the universe.
0: Wow, and that's that's kind of, you know, like you said, the birth, maybe not the birth, but really the blossoming. And that was the yeah. word you use of uh, of astrobiology, life forming yeah. outside yeah. of Earth. It's yeah. just a wild concept. Yeah, how is that even possible?
1: Yeah, and you know, the other thing is, it it did it was a strong impetus to driving NASA's uh, Mars exploration program. You know, it is. Uh, A lot of it is geared towards finding evidence for habitability uh, locations on Mars. And ultimately, uh, you know, from locations where we think there may have been a chance for life, you know, bringing back or, or studying in situ samples for possible evidence of microbial or, or larger life on Mars.
0: Yeah. And you said you were, uh, be- before we started recording, you said you actually were working with Opportunity too, one of the rovers on, yeah. on uh, Mars. Yeah.
1: I, in uh, 2005, uh, I got attached to the Mars Exploration Rover mission. Yeah. At the time we had two rovers uh, going, one Spirit in Gusev crater and the other Opportunity in uh, Meridiani Planum. Um, Subsequently, uh, Spirit uh, uh, froze to death one winter. Oh, wow. um, uh, basically, uh, s- uh, so Spirit lost uh, mobility of one of its wheels. So we were driving backwards, dragging one of the front wheels like a boat anchor through the soil. Oh, man. And uh, we, um, you know, the the uh, rover drivers and scientists are very careful. Um we drove over an area that looked like it was going to be solid trafficable ground, but it turned out there was a, uh, a basically a hard pan layer on top of soil. Hard pan is kind of a indurated layer that's a little bit stiffer. So it didn't look like it was, you know, loose sand, but it turns out we broke through and got mired in uh, a deep uh, uh, sand pit basically ah. and uh, we were unable to uh, extract the rover from the sand uh, in spite of heroic efforts by the uh, engineers uh, the rover drivers at JPL yeah uh, and the solar panel was tilted at a bad angle for uh, you know the oncoming winter sun so when the sun started getting lower and lower relative to the tilt of the of the solar panel we we simply uh, we're not getting enough power to keep the rover uh, going, and uh, uh, although we tried to contact it again after that winter, uh, we never heard from it again. So it, it basically just froze to death on Mars. Oh man!
0: But it, as Opportunity, its twin is it? The, uh, yeah. Yep, Opportunity is its twin, and that one's still going, right? And that
1: one's still going. Um, we're now uh, so uh, we're now uh, what day is today? That the, uh, the eighth? Yeah. Yeah, we're now about two weeks away from. Uh, the anniversary, the 14th anniversary of landing on Mars for Opportunity. 14 years, wow. Yeah, it's still going strong, Um, and uh, we are still actively exploring uh, uh, the geology of Meridiani Planum. Uh, We don't have all the instruments we had when we landed, Mm -hmm. uh, but we're still uh, making uh, great scientific discoveries even with the limited uh, rover ability. How about that? So
0: how is uh, how is you know working with a rover on Mars different from looking at meteorites, maybe even Martian meteorites like the Allen Hills on, here on Earth? How is that different?
1: Well, uh, so uh, you know, here on Earth, I have the luxury of taking a sample into the lab and and using state of the art scientific equipment to yeah. to tease out tease out its story. On Mars, uh, we have uh, cameras that we can use to image uh, the terrain. Um, so right away textures. and we have a microscopic camera. So textures allow us to you know make inferences about uh, uh, what the rock uh, how the rock might have been formed. Uh, we have a uh, camera with um, uh, 13 color filters on it. so we can do some limited spectroscopy of the rock that helps us um, uh, compare a limited set of mineralogical variations in the rocks. And then we have uh, the alpha particle X-ray spectrometer, which uh, allows us to do uh, uh, bulk compositions of, of surfaces. So uh, between them, we we can uh, we can get a fairly good handle of the mineral well, mostly the textures and bulk composition, and to some extent mineralogy of a rock, and that helps us understand uh, uh, what processes might have formed uh, the rock uh, hmm. altogether. And you know, to some extent, where opportunity is a, a high-tech version of a 19th-century terrestrial geologist. Um, <laughs> uh, but you know, uh, the the obviously the spectrometer is better than what they had in the 19th century, and yeah. the chemical uh, composition is uh, as as good as we could do then, uh, and actually better for many elements. Um, uh, uh, but uh, um, we're we're still uh, not at the cutting edge as you as you could do if you had a, a you know a mobile laboratory up on Mars.
0: Yeah, definitely. And that's kind of your your trade-off, right? Is like here, you know, you can. Bring them to a lab with all the latest equipment and and study these meteorites. But like you said before, like there's a certain amount of contamination that's going on with right, right. just the fact that a meteorite has come through the atmosphere and hit the hit the uh, uh, the surface of the Earth. You know, right. you have to deal with that. But then you have limited instruments right there on the uh, on Mars. So I guess you just kind of have these trade-offs. <laughs> yep. Yep. <laughs> um, so another one that you mentioned, another infamous meteorite was uh, one called Orgueil, and that one's that one's much earlier than uh, the Allen Hills one, right?
1: Yeah. So Orgueil fell in France in 1864, if I if I remember right. Mm-hmm. Um, and what's key here is it's a it's a very primitive type of meteorite. It's it's a carbonaceous chondrite. Um, the the two letter uh, uh, n- uh, name for it is a CI carbonate uh, chondrite. Um, These are amongst the most primitive materials, primitive meteorites that we have for study. Their bulk compositions basically are identical to what we see for the photosphere of the sun, excluding the most volatile elements like like helium, uh, hydrogen, and oxygen, and so forth. But if you could take the sun... Uh, you know, a, a cubic kilometer of the sun and condense out all the condensable matter. It would the composition would be very much uh, like a, a carbonaceous CI carbonaceous chondrite. So these have always been uh, the touchstone for understanding uh, the chemical evolution of the solar system. They are our 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 uh, basis for uh, seeing who has varied from the original composition. Um, but they're highly altered. So they're almost completely made up of uh, clays and other low temperature alteration phases. So the original high temperature phases have been replaced. So at some point, uh, these things were uh, um, altered by water uh, in in their parent asteroid to the point where all that's left is is, basically clay. Um, This makes them... uh, this made Orgay susceptible to a nefarious individual attempting to prove something, what we don't know because we don't know who that individual was. <laughs> but, you know, I would call Orgay uh, the Piltdown Man of meteorites. So huh. Piltdown Man was, was this fake fossil uh, made in uh, about 1912, I think, uh, to look like, it had some of the attributes of an ape, but some of the attributes of a modern human because someone thought that that's the way human evolution went. Uh. And they wanted to show that we had fossils that fit in with that theory. Well, Orge, at some point, was broken open. And it turns out because this is clay, you can, if you get it good and wet, you can f- kind of break it open like clay. And then they had stuffed in... Uh, terrestrial seeds and plant fragments and coal, and then put it back together and coated the outside with glue to make it look like it still had the fusion crust on it. Oh, my gosh. And then this sample was sealed in a bell jar in a museum from 1864. So apparently it happened very early. Yeah, We don't know who did it. Um, or why, you know, what were they trying to accomplish by this? Because it was going to be sealed in a bell jar. Right. Did, you know, did they think someone was going to then take it out and look at it? I, I don't know. But uh, this this came to light in the 1960s then. Oh, um, and uh, uh, so, uh, a, a well-known meteoriticist uh, by the name of Ed Anders, uh, very famous, uh, very smart man, uh, he led a study that was published a hundred years later in 1964 in Science, where he uncovered, you know, all of this uh, forensic uh, 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 meteoritic work, where he showed that you know the seeds were you know, terrestrial seeds, the coal fragments were in there, the, that glue had been used to put it back together and make it look like it was whole, um, and, and all of this. And and so that's why, I, you know, I, this is a, an infamous, infamous meteorite for those who are in the know. Most people won't have heard of it, but, right. you know, like I said, it's kind of the piltdown man of meteoritics. Wow. So someone had an agenda. They wanted to, they, for some reason, they wanted to show that life could form on an asteroid or or in space or something. I don't know. But obviously, they had they had some agenda when they did this.
0: Yeah, I know. But seeds and glue are not really a good way to convince people.
1: No. <laughs> no. <laughs> you know, back in the you know, mid-19th century, you know, had it been opened up and studied then, maybe it would have caused quite a furor. But yeah. as far as I know, this was only discovered in, you know, a century later. Wow. A hundred
0: years, of people thinking this is some kind of like capsule of yeah, extraterrestrial yeah. life. How about that? Yeah, yeah. Um, so you know, all of these kind of tell a story, and unfortunately, some of them this <laughs> this particular one was a little bit of a lie. But um, you know, we are cracking these open to search for evidence of of whatever we can find, right? Maybe maybe the formation of a planet, maybe the formation of solar system, maybe the formation of life. Yeah. So um, you know what. In a perfect world, I guess, what would you like to do? What would you like to study? What would you like to see and do to really maximize what you can find about learning more about our solar system and about life in the universe?
1: Well, I mean, that that's kind of a, a difficult question for a scientist to answer because, you know, truth be told, we're all paid to pursue our hobbies. And so we <laughs> all have our own hobby horses. So <laughs> it, it, as, I, as I mentioned, um, you know, my particular interests are in igneous processes. I, you know, on the Earth, Moon, Mars, asteroids. I, I, I like um, uh, magmatic rocks, and you know, I couldn't tell you why. It's just the way I am. <laughs> uh, um, so, one of the things, uh, one of the things that's very curious about um, asteroidal igneous rocks is that asteroids were melted very early in the solar system, probably within a couple million years of the formation of the earliest known solids in the solar system. So something had to heat up relatively small objects, maybe a few hundred uh, kilometers, uh, you know, uh, 200 miles in in radius, something like that, Mm -hmm. to the point where they were melted and then cooled down, and then they completely shut off after that. So it was a very, very intense heat source that acted early, Died out and then never came back. You know, we think we know what what caused this, um, but there, uh, you know, and the so the um, uh, the leading contender is radioactive heating by a very short-lived uh, isotope of aluminum. It has a half-life of about seven hundred and thirty million years, and so and aluminum is a is a major element in in rocks. So if you if you uh, a, Accumulate an asteroid early enough when there's this aluminum 27 still live, uh, you've, you know, you've then encapsulated a very potent heat source inside that rock. <laughs> and so that's what we think happened. But still, um, it, you know, we can, ima- as scientists, we can imagine this process going on. But geology is always much more complicated than our imaginations. So there are things that I don't understand, things that, as far as I know, no one really understands about how uh, asteroids went from being uh, primitive objects that accumulated from minerals formed in the solar nebula to basically a molten ball that then crystallized out uh, igneous uh, uh, magmatic rocks similar to what we see on Earth. Mm -hmm. I would desperately like to get, you know, be able to, find out more about how, what was going on, you know, what have we missed? Because we, you know, we tend to think of things in in the simplest terms. You know, it was heated up, melted, crystallized, that's it. Well, we know that that's not all the story. Yeah. Um, and I think all meteoriticists have in the back of their minds, um, for their particular uh, uh, hobby horses, um, just... Things they don't quite understand. They know the the broader picture, mm-hmm. but what are the finer details that went into to this? We we know we've got the basic uh, uh, story, but what are you know all the chapter and verse that that go into this basic story? Wow. So uh, you know that's what drives me, um, and it it's all it's all a matter of uh, you know learning something new um, that that uh, uh, you know. Pushes forth human knowledge. You know what I do is is is, in, can, is in nowhere near applied science. Um, it's pure basic science. So I can't hmm. I can't talk to someone and say you know tomorrow you're going to be able to have a better life because of what I do. Hmm. Uh, only if you know unless. You think a better life means knowing more, <laughs> uh, but but you never know because uh, in in general a large fraction of basic research ultimately does find an application. Yeah. Right now, I don't know what that application might be, um, but I, I won't say there's never going to be some application for what I do. Mm-hmm. But for me, it's it's the sense of learning something that that drives me.
0: Yeah. Why learn if you don't think it's going to end up, you know, giving you a better life? I mean, honestly, you know, learning things kind of helps you understand things, helps things come together. To me, that makes me pretty happy. So I I could see that, you know, (laughs) better understanding giving me a better life. Yeah.
1: Well, I mean, you know, humans have always been curious. and, And, you know, I suspect the reason we're curious is because it's beneficial for survival. Because... You know, when when you're out in the you know the savanna hunting lions or hunting uh, gazelles, mm-hmm. if you see something moving the weeds over there, you know, okay, is that. Gazelle, or is that a lion about to eat me instead? So, you Uh, know, humans are geared toward being curious about their environment because it's a survival mechanism. Yeah. And for scientists, we have now transposed that, you know, away from worrying about whether we're going to be eaten to just (laughs) broad knowledge in general.
0: Well, I think uh, last time we sat down with um, Dr. Uh, Burton, he said, he t- kept talking about this time machine, how easy it would be nice, how nice it would be to just kind of hop in a time machine, watch these processes take place and be like, ah, that's how it that's how it takes yep. place. I mean, then there's this whole philosophical idea of, well, is that going to alter the universe if you go back in time and watch these things? So, you know, that was another tangent we could have gone on and we didn't, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it would be nice to, you know, for the you know, to improve our knowledge a little bit of how yeah. all this stuff works and yeah. comes together. All right, so, Duck, I think uh, I think that about wraps it up for today. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast well, and kind of...
1: It's been a pleasure. I hope I've imparted something that uh, makes sense <laughs> to the listeners and, and that they will find uh, interesting.
0: Uh, it's actually, you know... You know, we're talking about rocks if you think about it, but it's absolutely fascinating what you can find and the stories behind these rocks and what they tell you about the universe and even just your trips to Antarctica are pretty fascinating as well. So, again, thanks so much for coming on and telling the stories of these beautiful rocks and your trips to Antarctica. And, uh, yeah, hopefully we'll... uh, we'll Find some cool evidence of life or, you know, you'll find that key ingredient as to why, you know, the asteroids
1: did what they did. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, I hope so. And thank you very much for the invite. Absolutely.
0: Hey, thanks for sticking around. So today we talked with Dr. Duck Middlefield about some of the cooler, infamous meteorites that have been discovered throughout the years, and then some interesting stories about Antarctica and how he's finding them. It's really a cool process, and he works with a... uh, uh, ANSMET. It's the Antarctic Search for Meteorites. So if you want to learn more about ANSMET and some of the adventures that are going on in Antarctica and some of the curious findings in these meteorites, especially some that may or may not be life, um, it turns out that there were some, you know, faked meteorites at the end of there, which is kind of disappointing, but that's okay. You can go to aries.jsc.nasa.gov to get the full scoop on all of these cool meteorites. And and you can learn how to get your hands on one of these meteorite samples to study them. Uh, if you go to uh, social media on the NASA Johnson Space Center accounts, or if you go to uh, Aries or Astro Materials, NASA Astro Materials, we got um, pages on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram where we like to share these stories. Uh, just use the hashtag AskNASA on your, play- on your favorite platform to submit an idea, or if you have a question about meteorites, or if you want to submit a new topic uh, for the show, just me- make sure to mention It's for Houston. We have a podcast. So this podcast was recorded on January 8th, 2018. Thanks to Alex Perryman, Greg Wiseman, Tracy Calhoun, and Jenny Knotts. And thanks again to Dr. Duck Middlefield for coming on the show. We'll be back next week.